Hey listeners, welcome to episode 63 of the Untangled Faith podcast. In today's episode, I have a conversation with a pastor who walked through the experience of facing a false allegation. I wasn't sure how to bring this to you because we worked so hard to help people understand how rare false allegations are. But I think this is a crucial part of the conversation. And if you're a Patreon member, you'll also get a full bonus episode with the Executive Director of Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. Both of these conversations will have you thinking about the next right steps for you in your own community. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Many of my listeners are well aware of the fact that false allegations of abuse are rare. The statistics bear this out. There are numerous reasons for this, and I'm grateful for those who have done the work to help educate the public on this. But that doesn't change the fact that there are allegations that end up being false. How do we grapple with this as people who want allegations to be taken seriously, but also want to show that we care deeply about the truth? We're going to talk about that in today's episode. My friend and fellow podcaster, Marcus Watson, joins me today to talk about his experience with being falsely accused. Marcus Watson is a Presbyterian pastor, and he'll tell you that there was a time when he thought he would never be a pastor again. About seven and a half years into his time at a church in San Diego, And two weeks into his sabbatical, he received a call from his executive presbyter. And he said, um, hey, Marcus, um, you know, I want to I want I'd like to meet with you this weekend. And uh, uh, I said, oh, uh, well, I'm actually going to be out of town. Uh, We can do it next week. And um, we went back and forth a little bit. Um, Finally, I said, listen, I'm I'm on I'm on sabbatical. I'm going to go visit my brother and some friends. He said, can you? can you not, can you just cancel that or reschedule? I'm like, no, I can't. I'm Mm. like, this is weird. Eventually I agreed to meet with him on that Sunday, which was mother's day. And what I found out later was that he had gone to my wife's work. So this is where the, the unhealth started right from the beginning. He went to my Mm. wife's work without ever contacting me and asked her if I would be available this weekend. So he kind of wanted to pin me down. And my wife, you know, her reaction was, is Marcus getting fired? Or, you know, is he losing his job? And he said, well, I don't know. And of course, she started crying. I didn't know this, that when he called me, we met with him and uh, he and another person came to our house and basically said to us uh, that someone has accused you of uh, having a problem with pornography. Due to the pervasive nature of pornography, Marcus had already taken steps to make sure that he had accountability in regard to this issue. He had someone he was accountable to, and he had accountability software installed. On all of his devices. Uh, another pastor in our presbytery was my, and still is my accountability partner. So anyway, so I said, 
oh, well, uh, what do you need to do? And he said, we need to do a forensic analysis on your laptop. So I said, do you want it right now? He said, that'd be good. I didn't want to look like I was hiding anything because I had nothing mm-hmm. to hide. Right. And so I gave it to him and uh, he took it. He said it would take about two, two or three days. It ended up taking a lot longer. It took about three weeks. After about three weeks, he called me again and he said, uh, well, Marcus, the forensic analysis is complete. I can't give it to you now. Uh, I can't give you your laptop because it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I couldn't imagine what he was like, what would have sparked that, you know, and of course, my I, I think child pornography. Right. But I know I've never looked at that. Right. There's there's no way that that's on there. Then I'm thinking bomb making instructions. I don't know. You know, <laughs> you know does, does somehow that get onto my computer? You know what? So I'm, I'm trying to think of all the things that could possibly have turned this into a criminal investigation. He couldn't give me any information. And that just sort of led into a really dark time uh, for me. Yeah. That was maybe about yeah five weeks into my sabbatical. It was a 12-week sabbatical, so almost halfway through. And so the rest of my sabbatical was just this really dark, heavy shadowy experience. Thankfully, I did have a good friend who was very supportive. And that's one of the things I've learned is that it's so important to have people who support you. And the same guy who's my accountability partner, still a great friend. And he he's a pastor in our presbytery. He really went to bat for me. And he went to bat for me in ways that I couldn't go to bat for myself. He and another pastor in our presbytery met with our executive presbyter and said, why are you doing this? In the Presbyterian church, there's a specific process for handling accusations like this. Marcus joked that Presbyterians have processes for everything. One of the problems here was that no one was following this process. So so from what I discovered is this person who was making these allegations didn't want to make formal allegations. The executive presbyter felt like, okay, well, I need to do something with this accusation. And so He made up a process. What should have happened was there should have been allegations filed with a presbytery. An investigative committee would have been formed. They would have investigated the nature of the, uh, not just the nature of the allegations, but uh, whether or not they were true. And then if they discovered that they were true, then they would have uh, begun a trial. There would have been a trial, essentially, Um, an ecclesiastical trial, church trial. Yeah, and then and then it would have been determined, you know, okay, well, should Marcus be a pastor or not anymore? He wasn't following that process at all. And and that process is designed to have protections for everyone involved, the accuser right, and the yeah. accused, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was just sort of completely in the dark about everything, uh, other than what my friend Kevin was kind of letting me know that he was discovering along the way. At a certain point, friends recommended that Marcus get a lawyer. I went and I met with her, uh, this attorney, and told her all about what was happening uh, up until that point. And she started painting this really sort of bleak picture of what might happen. And she told me right up front, if if you're guilty of this, I'm not going to represent you. I don't. So she said, you know, if if they want to, you know, arrest you, they're going to show up at four in the morning. They're going to bang on your door. They're going to take you in. And, you know, that's that's kind of how it works. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. And just envisioning all these horrible things, you know, that could happen. And um, after about an hour or so of me telling her what was going on and her painting this really bleak picture. She said, well, I can tell you're not guilty. And I said, oh, how can you tell? And she said, well, you're not asking the right questions. If you were guilty, you'd be asking questions like, uh, what's our defense going to be? You know, how much time am I looking at? And, uh, and you're just yeah. asking about how you can get your laptop back. And so that was like this moment of grace for me. There are some other moments of grace. Uh, another one was 
after having been with my friend who was really supporting me. And he was like a pastoral presence to me in a way. He mm-hmm. would text me every other day or call me, how you doing today? You know, he'd take me out for dinner or drinks or whatever, you know, every now and then and just super supportive. And I was driving home from one of those times out with him and uh, I was just sort of talking to God. I said, Lord, why is he doing this? He doesn't have to do this. I mean, that's a lot of energy and time for him. And he's got kids and he doesn't have to do this. And it just sort of occurred to me in that moment that I felt that I realized, oh, I feel like I don't deserve this. Just mm-hmm. personally, not because I did anything wrong, but just as a human being, I realized I don't. I feel like I don't deserve to be cared for and loved. So the next day I was at the beach, I just spent three hours probably just telling myself, uh, I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be loved. Mm-hmm. I deserve. And, and by deserve, I deserve to be loved by people and I deserve to be loved by God. Not because I've earned it, but because I'm worthy of it, right? A human being mm-hmm. created in the image of God. Uh, I don't deserve it more or less than anyone else, but I deserve it. I'm worthy of it. And so I just had to undo this message that I've been telling myself, you know, every time I grew up, you know, evangelical and when you sin, you say, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy, you know? (laughs) And so I would, I'd say, Lord, please forgive me. Uh, I don't deserve your love, right? And so I just, I had to undo that message that I've been telling myself for 30 years that I don't deserve God's love. And so that was like a moment of grace. And then there was another one um, that was really kind of the most important one for me. I spent a lot of time in silence and solitude. It was kind of a blessing that I was on sabbatical because I didn't have yeah. to do my work and I could just sort of, I mean, it was it was pros and cons to that. One of the blessings was that I had a lot of time just to be with God. And so I was sitting on my patio in the morning and spending some time in, in one of the Psalms of Lament. Uh, yeah, just sort of being with God. And I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the Psalms of Lament. I mean, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I get it, Lord. I get it when you, when David said, you know, destroy my enemies or whatever. I'm like, yeah, yeah I kind of yeah. feel like that right now. Yeah. So anyway, after one of these times in one of those scriptures, I just, just sort of sitting there and I just started thinking about all the stuff that could happen, right? If it looks like I'm guilty of this, what might happen? And I thought, man, I could lose my job. And I thought I could lose my ordination. I could lose my reputation. Uh, that was kind of the most, the hardest one of those, to, to think that people would think this thing about me that wasn't true. Yeah. Uh, I could lose my family, I thought, you know, um, not that I don't think I would have, you know, your, my mind was going into all these dark places. And I thought, boy, I could become a registered sex offender. And everywhere mm-hmm. I go, people would would believe this thing about me that was not true, right? And I would, and then I thought I could go to prison if it looks like I'm guilty of whatever it is. And in that moment, like I was sort of just envisioning myself, just seeing myself sitting in a prison cell, having lost everything, lost my my job, my calling, my my uh, my church, my family, my house, you know, everything. I heard God say, I didn't hear God say, but it was like I sensed him saying, yes, Marcus, they might take everything from you, uh, but they can never take my love away from you. Wow. Wow. I kind of think of my life as before that moment and after that moment. Like that Mm -hmm. was the moment where I understood God's love. And I'm grateful I didn't actually have to experience those things, you know, I mean, and I know some people do, uh, but that was the moment where it's like I understood God's love in a whole new way. I, I always believed in God's unconditional love, right? Uh, but all of a sudden I got it in a way that, that I'd never gotten it before. This is one of those worst nightmare scenarios that you don't even know to imagine 
as a worst case scenario. It's, it was one of those things where it's like, I can't believe this is happening to me, right? And that yeah. this could happen to me. These things that I'm imagining could yeah. happen to me. I had never been in a place where I could even Im- imagine those kinds of things happening. So after that, my lawyer found out from for me, uh, she she was fantastic. She did never charge me anything. I'm so grateful. She said, oh, if wow. I ever have to, you know, go sit, with, in a, with an interrogator or something, then, then, then I'll, you know, I'll bill you. But for now, I just want to get you some justice. And so I was really grateful yeah. for that. that. Was a gift. She's the one who found out for me that um, the authorities who had my laptop was the FBI. About a week or so before I was set to go back to work, I contacted our executive presbyter and I said to him, "Hey, I'm going back to work next week. I don't know if I'm going to get my laptop back, but I at least need some of my work documents. Can you get those for me?" And he said, "Yeah, let me see what I can do." So he did, and he got them on a little you know, flash drive, and I met up with him, and he handed them to me, and he said, hey, just off the record, I wanted to let you know that they said they haven't really found anything. And my response was very stoic, I, I remember. I don't remember exactly what I said. I just said, oh, okay. But I think inside I was just thinking, of course they didn't, right? That's not a surprise. It's not like I went... I didn't go, whew, they didn't find it. They just didn't find anything because there was nothing there. Uh, literally, maybe just uh, maybe it was a week, uh, ha- half a week later, he, he emailed me and he said, he said, hey, I have your laptop in my office. You can come get it if you want to. And so I was like, oh, OK, well, that's great news. And so I contacted my lawyer, though. I said, do you have any any suggestions? She said, actually, he should not be contacting you. And she was kind of upset about this because there's like this yeah. live investigation happening. She said, you and he should not be in contact with each other. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, she said, tell him that he can drop it off at my office and you can get it from me. So I, I told him, I emailed him. I said, due to the nature of the investigation, blah, blah, blah. He emailed me back four words and he just said, uh, Marcus, what investigation? And then signed his name. And I was just like, what? And it was like, <laughs> I got punched in the face and I... Like- I cursed, I think, and I was just like, why would you say that? Like, I was so angry because it's like he was trying to pretend like nothing had ever, maybe for his own protection, because he didn't follow the process, right? Yeah. And so acting as though nothing actually even happened and not acknowledging it. And so I was just so angry about that. Here's something I'm thinking of as you're telling me the story. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, you know, the church is... And as a whole is grappling with the idea of sexual abuse mm-hmm. uh, and how they have mishandled allegations and mishandled the whole thing. Yeah. And, and we know that there are false allegations, but that it's mm-hmm. rare. And so hearing something like this is a hard thing, I think, to wrap our brains around mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we're trying to come to the place where we like believe people that make yeah. the allegation. Right. I wanted to know if Marcus was grateful that after the allegation, there was an investigation. How is that a good thing? There were two investigations. The first yeah. one was not handled well because it was just sort of a made-up process. Like one of the things I learned, uh, you know, sometimes I'm really annoyed at our book of order. We, that's our, you know, constitution. And uh, yes. <laughs> because it's got all these rules and regulations that you have to pro- follow. But after this, uh, I have gained a great appreciation for the Book of Order. Let me tell you what happened next, because that, that actually gets to your question about investigations. Sure. Uh, after this first unofficial investigation, which include a lot of dishonesty, they actually went to my elders before they ever met with me and said, 
oh, the presbytery is going, you know, doing this pilot program of, uh, you know, examining churches' computers, and we'd like to start with with you. That was just a pretense to get their hands on my laptop. And so the elders and my church, and I was not there. I was, someone else was, they're like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. So they agreed to it. So that way they had the session's approval to get my laptop, which was owned by the church. Um, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. There's just dishonesty in it right from the beginning. There was going behind my back to my wife and then just sort of and, and handing it off to a forensic an- analyst. Now, so here's what I think happened is there were pictures of my kids goofing around in their underwear. The analyst said, well, it's not my job uh, to decide if this is pornography or not. So let me hand it off to the FBI and they can decide that. The FBI right. looked at my pictures or my computer or whatever and said, there's no child pornography here. So the first investigation was just a mess. Then the person who made those initial allegations was a staff person in our church. You know, I would meet with each of our staff on a weekly or by every other week kind of basis. In one of those meetings, this person was telling me about her husband's pornography problem. And so I was listening. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know. Anyway, so she said to another person who then told me uh, that she said, you know, I, I told Pastor Marcus about my husband's pornography problem. And he just didn't react the way I thought he would. I bet he's got a problem with that, too. This part of Marcus' story blows my mind. This entire process was kicked off by someone who had no evidence of wrongdoing. She just didn't like how he responded when she disclosed her husband's struggle with pornography. So she then filed formal allegations because she didn't like the outcome of that unofficial investigation. If it had been an official investigation, she would not have been able to file allegations again. So that created a whole new... Remember, this woman had no evidence of wrongdoing. She didn't like the results of the FBI investigation. The FBI who knows what they're looking for, who would know what the hints are and the patterns are and where to look when someone actually is in receipt of or is using child sexual abuse material. This is what they are trained to do. So this woman asked for another investigation. And even and at first I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening again. I mean, we just yeah, got yeah. through this, right? Yeah. I, I just got my laptop back and now they're going to investigate again. Someone from the Presbyterian office literally came to me. I was in a meeting and handed me an envelope stating the allegations that are being, and the, and the allegations themselves were, uh, not super specific, but but I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm thinking through all the things that could possibly have led to that kind of an allegation. But that first day was really dark. But by the end of it, I had kind of calmed down and I thought, you know what, Lord, you got me through this first investigation. You'll get me through the second investigation too. Here's the, here's the process, right? And this is a healthy, good process. I yeah. was called before a, uh, a panel of three people, uh, a pastor, an elder, and the state clerk of our presbytery. It was their job to determine whether or not I should be put on administrative leave. The pastor was actually a former attorney. The other one was a psychologist. And uh, anyway, so really good, um, solid people. You know, they questioned me. Anyway, so they left the room uh, after we had talked. They explained what was going on and asked me if I had anything to say. Came back in and they said, well, we're not going to put you on administrative leave. And then he kind of explained to me, and it was all written out, that uh, the allegations were not actually based on any knowledge that the accuser had. They had no knowledge of any misconduct. It was all sort of speculation. The, the argument was, well, since 
his laptop was handed off to the FBI, then there must be something illegal on his laptop. And it's mm, probably child wow. pornography, right? So that was how the al- allegation was made. But there was no, I have experienced this or I have seen this or it was all speculation. So they saw that and I was really grateful for that. And so then for the next three months, uh, an inve- so an investigative committee was formed, which is made up of pastors and elders in our presbytery. And they conducted interviews with certainly the accuser, uh, whoever else she might have directed them to. They interviewed yeah. my wife. They interviewed uh, my friend, pastor, who's an administ- uh, my accountability partner, you know. And then they interviewed me at the end. I had been keeping a, a timeline of everything that had happened, right, a, a detailed chronology. And so I met with mm-hmm. them. They're like, okay, that's helpful, you know. And anyway, and then they determined that there was no basis for the allegations. There's no evidence to support the allegations. And so they closed the investigation and determined not to file charges. That would have been the next step. And so I was like, oh, okay, good. Thank you, Lord. And so to answer your question about investigations, that's what I needed, right? I needed that investigation to exonerate me. Um, The first one kind of exonerated me, but it wasn't the process I actually said to our stated clerk at the time, who was part of this unofficial investigation, I think she was sort of swept along in it. Um, so we have executive presbyter and stated clerk. Those are the top two positions. Sure. Executive pres- presbyter, the leader, stated clerk is more like the administrative person, uh, but but high level administrative person. I said I said to her in a conversation during that first investigation, I said, "There's you know, like we have a process for this. Why aren't we following it?" And uh, she said, well, you know, we need to do it this way, blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't remember what she said exactly. Our book of order is based on generations of experience, right? And she's like, well, I know, I know, you know. And so so that's why I say I've grown to appreciate our book of order, even though sometimes I'm like, gosh, there's a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot and all mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah, yeah. But we have a process. There's, there's a lot of accountability in our denomination, right? And if someone feels threatened, you know, the person who accused me, more or less, did the right thing. I, I wish she had filed formal allegations right away so we could have just had one of investigation. But at least yeah. she could go to someone, right? And anyone in our congregation, right, if they feel threatened or uh, you know abused in any way, yeah, they yeah. can go to the presbytery and file allegations. And there's a process then, right? So we have a process. And I'm just very grateful for that. Yeah, it protects and, everyone. It does. It, it, when it works, when it's, when it's functioning properly. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you've got a, a healthy diversity of people on a, an investigation like that, that yeah. leads to, I think, a healthier outcome and hopefully a truer outcome. I think yeah. uh, Dr. Scott McKnight would agree. You know, he wrote oh, uh, yeah. a church called Tove and mm-hmm. talks about the different, uh, how, how to have more diversity and opinion in, in these sorts yeah. of leadership committees, uh, you know, whatever, whatever they're called and how important Mm -hmm. that is because you get out of your echo, you get out of your echo chamber there. Uh But, you know, you telling me this story, I hope if somebody hears it, they think, ah, okay, it is, this is designed to, to show if there is anything there and to easily show if is a false allegation. Mm -hmm. So, that you welcomed, you know, you didn't, I mean, you, if you're going to be in this, you're like, let's do the real process yeah, that's in place. Right. Let's just, right. you know, let's not waste time mm-hmm. on the other stuff yeah. that, because who's going to, now that that's out there, there, there has to be some sort of revol- 
resolution to it, right? Like right. once somebody has said something, yeah. somebody's got to figure out a way to get to the bottom of it instead of just right. leaving it sort of floating in the air. I can understand that if I had been guilty, I'd have been like, I don't want an investigation, <laughs> right? And yeah. I think that's what we see in a lot of places. Yeah. No, 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 no investigation, because then they might find out what's really happening here. I so appreciate this perspective from Marcus, and I hope you all notice this. When someone knows they've been accused falsely, they welcome a transparent process that has an aim to discover the truth. Like a guest mentioned on one of my very first episodes said, the truth says, examine me. Having a process in place is crucial, but it is useless if you don't follow it or you follow it in a way that is inconsistent. I want to take a brief detour and check in with my friend, Executive Director of Grace, Pete Singer, and talk a little bit about some of his thoughts on investigations when it comes to communities investigating themselves. And we talk about the importance of training and having independent investigations. Something I want you to consider as you're listening. Yes, an organization can investigate themselves if they have a good policy and procedure that they follow, but there are always going to be issues Here are some thoughts from Executive Director of Grace, Pete Singer. Tell me about the organization that says, you know what, we have some really great leaders and we we don't need outside help with things. We, you know, I've hired, you know, our, our elder board is full of business leaders and lawyers and you know, if we hear of an allegation that is connected to this, to our church or our organization, we'll be fine. Uh, we'll just set up a committee. How would you respond to that? We know how effective church committees can be. <laughs> um, I think it's really important to know, logistically speaking, most people on that elder board would not have been trained to do an investigation. I don't know for sure, you know, what type of misconduct that particular church might be dealing with. Would they be dealing with an allegation of sexual misconduct towards a minor? Would they be dealing with an allegation of clergy sexual abuse? Would they be dealing with an allegation of sexual harassment? Would they be dealing with uh, how did leadership respond to a peer-on-peer situation? Mm. What would they be looking at and what makes them think that they have the training and the experience to understand the dynamics of the theology of power. Yeah. The psychology of power, the ins and outs of child development, of brain development, the neuroscience, the different things that research shows us about both behavior of perpetrators and uh, behavior of people who have been abused, who've been the subject of misconduct, to know that I'm not looking just for one set of behaviors. Yeah. Because there is no one set of behaviors, but to have the knowledge and the expertise to look for something broader, to recognize that it's going to be contextualized, that it's going to be nuanced. It's really important that we not investigate matters ourselves in part because of that skill issue. 
But I'll also tell you, I go to a church. And if there were an allegation that came up in my church, there's no way I'd be involved in investigating it. Even though you know a lot about investigations. I mean, I'm the executive director of Grace. I've been involved in a couple. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't touch it because I'm in that person's, within that person's sphere of influence. I've been groomed. Yeah. If they go to my church, I've been groomed. And if I've been groomed, I can't investigate. Even if you were to say, I'm going to be as aware as I can be of my bias. I still can't do it. Yeah. You can't see what you can't see. Right. I so appreciated this conversation with Pete Singer. You can find the rest of our conversation. If you are in the Patreon community, go and check that out. You can listen to our entire conversation. As I get back to this conversation with Marcus, I want to mention how important it is to look at all of the details that are involved here and how easy it is to see now that we can zoom out all of the failures when it came to investigating. In this case, it wasn't that the organization was blinded by their loyalty to Marcus. It was that they never even followed their own policies and procedures that were in place already. And so this was sort of destined to fail from the very beginning. And I think it's just another example of how very difficult it is to investigate situations in your own community. Here's the rest of my conversation with Marcus. Yeah. So with the investigation with the FBI, they ended up giving you your laptop back and saying, Mm -hmm. we didn't find anything. At that point, the damage is done, right? Like in your church, there's some unhealth going on there. What happened then? So I will say uh, this person who made these accusations would not let up. And even Mm -hmm. after the second investigation. So, I mean, I was going to say it. I felt like I was the abused in this relationship. Even after... After it was determined that there was no evidence to support the allegations, she made other kinds of allegations. She filed like hostile work environment things. And because I tried to say, all right, how are we going to work together now? And then finally, she just a a couple months later, she sent a letter to our elders, basically made the same allegations again. And so we had a meeting just to talk about that. And my friend Kevin came, my accountability partner, and he told them, that, uh, you know, I've got years worth of accountability reports, if you want to see them. Uh, we had a new executive presbyter at this point. And so he came and he had, you know, of course, gotten involved. And he said, you know, as far as the presbytery is concerned, this is a closed matter. And I shared my chronology with them of everything that had happened. I recused myself for about half an hour, came back in and they said, Marcus, we want you to know that you have our trust as our pastor. And they said, and we're not going to ask for your resignation. Someone had suggested that. And we're also going to brace for a potential lawsuit from this person, you know, who's been making these allegations. And so, Mm. uh, and and that ended as well as I could have hoped in that meeting. The congregation as a whole, I don't don't know how much they knew. It wasn't totally widespread yet. Um, But after that meeting, one of the elders, for whatever reason, decided to believe the allegations and... um, and started calling people in the church saying, Pastor Marcus is into child pornography. The more I listen to this story from Marcus, the more I keep seeing what a failure of leadership has happened at this church. I'm going to need somebody with an understanding of Presbyterian polity to explain to me why this elder was allowed to spread 
these unsubstantiated rumors. I didn't know that for about two weeks after that meeting. Uh, and when I found out, I was like, well, I think that's it. I'm done here. Yeah. That yeah. is so unfortunate that that elder yeah. did that. I mean, and you probably yeah. had grounds to fight that. But at that point, how much uh, energy you'd already investigated, invested it in, I mean, that's right. and to be like, man, right. who, and to put yourself and your family and everybody else yeah. through. It's interesting to me that as the truth came out, the biggest problem here had to do with the health of the church and the way that they responded to and processed events and how they communicated the truth to their congregation. And that, in the end, is what ended up being the thing that pushed out Marcus. This conversation about false allegations has been tricky. In this case, as I listened to Marcus lay out his situation, it seemed so clear that there was nothing to the accusations against him. But we only know this because there was an investigation. Here's something I've seen as a pattern with false allegations, especially as it relates to sexual misconduct or abuse. These accusations, the false accusations, fall apart very quickly when faced with scrutiny. Either the accusation is retracted very quickly, or it's shown that there is no corroborating evidence. Those making false accusations often do not want to go through the turmoil involved in an investigative process. Here's something else that seems to be a consistent pattern. Innocent people who are accused of wrongdoing often ask for scrutiny. They ask for someone to look for the truth. I've heard the fears of those who are thinking about loved ones and wonder what would happen if those loved ones were accused of harming someone. Here's my reassurance. If your loved one is accused and they're innocent, scrutiny will only show their character more clearly. People of integrity may face an accusation, but it's not common that it will hold up. The best defense is a life of consistent good character. Yeah, I was yeah. I was ready to be done. You know, so we had our annual congregational meeting like a few weeks after that, and that's where someone made the motion to dissolve the relationship. That's kind of our mm -hmm. language with me. And it passed by a margin of two votes. So it was not a unanimous decision by any means, you know. I think I yeah. think some people, even those who voted for my leaving, maybe even thought, you know, I don't really know what happened, but let's play it safe and let's get a new pastor. Yeah, or know? let's be done um, with the drama of it all and let, yeah. we want to be able to move on. How could we move yeah. on? Yeah. You know, by that point, it didn't break my heart when when that happened. I had already been through a year of just horrible <laughs> awfulness, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. and so I was just like, Ugh, I'm I'm done, thank you. And what's really really amazing, right? Here's God's faithfulness. The very next day, I was on a flight to Little Rock, Arkansas, for a week long pastors retreat that had been on my wow. calendar for six months already. Wow. And when I got there, I was not the only pastor who had been voted out of their congregation that same Sunday. That wow. was a very healing time, uh, just a good to get away and be there. What's surprising to me is that you could have been like, I don't want to be a pastor ever again. But like here, September 2022, mm -hmm. you're yeah. an interim pastor right now. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first reaction was I don't ever want to be a pastor again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it took a while for me to get there. When I thought about becoming a pastor again, it felt like the the metaphor that came to mind was it was like throwing myself into a snake pit, 
you know, so I, I was like, no way. I even t- and my parents, you know, when they found out what happened, they're like, do you think you'll be a pastor again? I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think I'm done with that. You know, I'll find other stuff to do. So I ended up uh, working for a nonprofit for about two years, a friend of mine who knew what had happened and he had started this nonprofit working with pastors, um, kind of coaching and, uh, and leading and anyway, training. And so, uh, I worked for Flourish San Diego for about two years and it was a great experience. It was so good for me, very healing to not be in charge, right. To not be the guy at the top. It, It was so good to have someone else leading me during that same time, I started guest preaching. Interestingly, the guy who was the pastor at the church where I'm the interim pastor now was the first one to say, hey, I'm looking for a guest preacher on that date. Would you be available? My gut instinct was to say no. I didn't say that, but I did. T- it was in, in, in an email. Um, I talked to my yeah. wife and she said, I think you should do it. I think you should just get right back into it. Yeah, it's like and get so, right back up again. Otherwise, you're not yeah, going to ever that's you right. wait too long. And I'm so glad I did. Um, and I found out that I really loved guest preaching because you know what? You can show up, you can give your sermon, and then you can go home. And if they don't like it, who cares? <laughs> you know. Even the role of interim pastor is mm-hmm. really a special position to hold, too. Where you know that you are there for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. People are yeah. going through a change. It's yeah. an uncertain time for the congregation. Yeah. And you get a chance to just be a pastor, pastor, and not to worry about being pastor, CEO, pastor, That's right. vision caster, pastor. And I'm not trying to impress anyone, right? I'm not trying to show people, you know, oh, how great, or to build the church or to, I I want you to be who you are and help you be the best you that you uh, can be for your next pastor. That's my job, right? And uh, just kind of figure out who you are and who you need, you know? While I was at Flourish, I was guest preaching and I started guest preaching at this tiny little church about two hours from where I live, still part of our San, uh, San Diego Presbytery, but there are only two churches, Presbyterian churches in the Imperial Valley, which is two hours away. Very agricultural, rural tiny little church in a tiny town of 2,000 people, I started to really enjoy these people. You know, just this little country church, 30 or 40 people on a good Sunday. And I preached there probably about 25 times over the course of one year, so about once or twice a month. And then when I announced that I was going to be leaving Flourish, you know, they said, would you consider being our interim pastor? And I was like, oh, well, let me consider it. And uh, we kind of had to figure out how that would work because it was so far yeah. away. I wasn't going to move there, you know, and it was part-time. And we figured out I'll come Sunday morning and stay until Monday night and, and I'll be in a hotel overnight, you know, and so I'll be all in for those two days and uh, and then I'll work on my sermon at home and all that, you know, and take phone calls, whatever. Um, but that worked really well because I needed clear boundaries in whatever church I was yeah. going to be in. Yeah. I mean, we had built in boundaries. There were mountains between us. And if yeah. something happened, they can't be like, hey, Pastor Marcus, can you come to the church real quick? That worked for me. And the other great thing is that they were so good to me, loving and kind. And and I really grew to love them. And I, I started thinking of them truly as my friends, you know. And so when I left there after about almost four years, the, yeah. and the only reason I left there was because I was like, I think I'm in a comfort zone now and I need to step beyond that. Someone said, hey, apply to this new church. I wasn't going to take it at first because I loved where I was, but then it felt like, okay, that's the right thing. Now, my calling, it feels like now, is not to be the pastor of a church, but just to help churches, right? I just want to help churches. That's why I have a podcast. That's why I have a book uh, to help churches. A little bit of coaching, right? And it could change, you know, but that's that's what I feel like my calling is now. I just want to help churches. And, And the experience that I had, I feel like gives me a 
a clearer sense of when there's unhealth. And yeah. I'm less afraid to name it. Uh, like there's, you know, pastors can be people pleasers for sure. And so uh, that experience gave me some more courage just in terms of naming. Hey, let's let's rethink how we do this here, <laughs> you know, or there's something not quite right here. Yeah. Yeah. And when you have those sort of boundaries and when you mm-hmm. know if you're just like in an interim position, you do have a little bit of leeway that you wouldn't mm-hmm. have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. There's less politics involved. Yeah. You know that this yeah. is your time. That's right. It's going to end. Yeah. And this is your role right now. I think it really is a miracle. It sounds like overstating it, that you are working in ministry still. But it clarified things for you, right? It clarified. Totally like, clarified. You know what it did? It clarified what really matters to God, right? Does yeah. God care if I have a big church or a little church? Nope. Um, yeah. Does God care where my church is located? Nope. Does he care how impressive the church campus is? Nope. Uh, all yeah. he cares about is, um, are we fulfilling God's mission in the world, which is to bring his healing and wholeness to the world, right? Yeah. Which includes yeah. salvation, but also restoration of relationships and uh, and healing of bodies and, and of economies, right? All of this is part yeah. of the mission of God. And so it clarified for me that... Um, my job is not to get my church to be bigger. My job is to help my church n- first know that they are God's beloved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then secondly, be the kind of people who help others know that they are God's beloved. I am so grateful to Marcus for his willingness to be on the podcast. Marcus and I kept talking for some bonus audio for the Patreon community. And I also have the full 51-minute conversation with Pete Singer, the Executive Director of Grace, that will be shared with the Patreon community as well. Don't forget to check that out at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to remind you that we're in the middle of the Share the Show campaign, and I would love for you to participate. All you have to do is share an episode with a friend or leave a review or post about it on social media. You can do one or all of these things and then let me know. It's super simple. I'll leave a link for you to let me know in the show notes and it will be on the Untangled Faith webpage at untangledfaithpodcast.com slash share the show. That's untangledfaithpodcast.com slash share the show. If you click that link to let me know that you shared the show, you will be entered in a drawing for one of two $50 Amazon gift cards. I'll be doing that drawing on December 10th, so make sure that your name is sent in to me by the end of the day on December 9th, 2022. This is also a great time to join the Patreon community if you haven't. Patreon members get access to bonus audio, live streams, and replays of past live streams and other benefits. It's the main way this podcast is made possible. Check it out at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. You can find the show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible by their support. I also want to give a shout out to the producer level supporters, Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, and Pam Forsyth. Thank you guys. I'll see you next week.